Welcome back to the Midwest Socialist Podcast. I am your host, Matt, and this week I am joined by a friend and comrade, Austin G. from uh, a few things, a few things of note. One is the DSA National NPC, the National Political Committee, uh, which I will let him explain in more detail what that is, what that does, what he does, what what the goal is, all these things. And uh, from one of my favorite podcasts in the world, Machete Mate, uh, it is a Latin American leftist podcast with revolutionary Marxist politics at its heart. And uh, it just fills my my heart with such joy to see um, three Puerto Ricans uh, talking about socialism and revolution and independence for Puerto Rico, as well as, you know, all of Latin America. And so uh, let me, without further ado, Austin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for the kind words. I am super duper happy to be here. I know you've already hosted my brother on here, so I'm totally not bitter that he came on first, but <laughs> I am happy that you got around to me at some point, so thank you. That that I will defend was a scheduling <laughs> conflict, you know? Uh, I believe... That's fair. I'll know, accept that. Uh, your brother famously... Not famously, that's a joke. Uh, that's a joke, but uh, <laughs> your, 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 your brother famously uh, a cell phone store employee, uh, and I Indeed. Have, I have made I have made jest that that is the most Puerto Rican job I've ever heard in my life. It is extremely. There you go. And what's and what's better about it is that it is a job that I got him. So he literally <laughs> got it from a family member. Even better. That's the second most Puerto Rican thing you hear <laughs> on this podcast. So that, let, let's you know that that industry gives you a little more leeway. Let's say. Yeah, I wanted to invite you on because this is a really interesting moment politically for Puerto Ricans. Uh, sure. I think you know as as every what referendum cycle can be what what the past five years have been um i i hear that in your voice i hear it in your tone yeah i just threw up in my mouth a little bit there you go there's so many things that i want to talk about you know being puerto rican and you know and just things that help i think not only a, a like a brown leftist a brown socialist a brown marxist like talk about but like this is like things that have happened within Latin America have made massive contributions to Marxism in general. I think they sure. have been some of the best developmental uh, politics for, for this philosophy, for this organizing work, for, for whatever you want to call it, for communism, socialism, Marxism in the past since it's been written. I mean, it, it, it's undeniable that yeah, it buddy. has made an impact on that study. And uh, I want to also kind of preface it with saying, that in and of itself proves that it is, uh, along with uh, many other regions, this is not a European politic. Mm -hmm. This is not a European philosophy. Exactly. It is the most diverse politic probably ever created in like yep. human civilization. One of the most. That, that's a broad statement, but it's one of the most, absolutely. So um, with that in mind, tell me a little bit about how your work in the NPC brushes up against your experience with Latin American leftism and, and these these politics overall. And what sure. what is the NPC? Let's start out with what's the NPC? Totally. So, yeah, so the NPC, uh, is, well, what it stands for is National Political Committee, right? Nice fancy title. The NPC is the uh, highest governing body of DSA between conventions, right? The NPC is essentially a technically a, a 16-member committee, although we do have uh, two YDSA representatives on there as well from our youth branch of that is. Um, it is a 16-member committee that is uh, elected at large by the National Convention as it convenes every two years. So the NPC, which I sit on, is essentially, to put this into English, I suppose, this shit is basically like a second full-time job. If anything, <laughs> on it, like, like when you talk about like what the day-to-day -day is like, yo, <laughs> here's the thing. I had plenty of various NPC members talk to me ahead of time saying, oh, yeah, it's like a second job. You're going to be it's going to be like, you know, 20, 30 hours a week. Yo, it's more than that. Like, You know how I would describe it? It's essentially like having a second like salaried job or a salaried job. Sorry. 
in the sense that like you're never off, right? You're constantly on call. You're constantly doing something. You're constantly working. So it's definitely it's definitely a challenge. Um, but with that said, yo, being on the NPC, serving on the NPC has given me the opportunity to do some of the most rewarding work that I've ever been able to engage in in my entire life. It's kind of how I met you, I guess, kind of, although I guess that's more of a podcast thing, but still, that's, that's definitely part of it. Like ESA organizing. Sure. Um, and I, and I'm happy to know you, man. Like I'm happy to know the people that I have met through my time on the NPC. Um, so to get into, I suppose a little bit of specifics, and this will be a, a nice segue when we talk about Latin American Marxism, right? One of the, the key things I do on the NPC is I work with the International Committee, right? Uh, that's one of the various things I, I do, I should say. I, I liaise to a couple different committees. But the International Committee work I'm particularly proud of. The International Committee, I would say it's objectively, in the past few years within DSA, it, it's grown to, it, it has grown to a size that is befitting of the largest socialist organization in the country, in my opinion, right? And I think to have been able to be a part of that, to have been able to really build on principled anti-imperialist campaigns, principled anti-imperialist statements and introducing that, or not introducing that, but being a part of that within the, the United States left. Oh man, it's such like, it is such rewarding work. I could literally never speak more highly of all the people that have worked to make that happen within the international committee, within the NPC as well, right? My fellow NPC comrades who have also been a part of this process. And it's once again, to see, just to see the international committee producing a statement on the Haitian protests, right? Mm -hmm. Right when it was happening, right? It, it wasn't reactive, right? It, we were involved in the process. Like we were following the events. To be able to see the international committee produce a statement on Haiti, in Haitian Creole, right? Oh man, that's just some moving stuff to me, right? Being able to actually give statements of what our organization, uh, or, or you know, how our organization can help um, different movements across the country in their native language. Oh man, that's invaluable, you know? To me, that's invaluable to building up ties, especially, especially when I think about Latin America, which I think it's also important to point out that in the past few years, uh, after the, the 2019 DSA National Convention, one of the resolutions that DSA passed regarding the International Committee was a resolution that uh, detailed giving a greater focus to Latin American issues, right? Giving a greater focus to Latin American solidarity. Um, so it's been amazing to see that part of it as well. And that's really like, you mentioned I'm Puerto Rican, right? <laughs> that's really important to me, right? It's really important to me to be showing solidarity to Latin America. And, and especially once again, going back to language justice, you know, doing it in Spanish, doing it in, in Haitian Creole, doing it in whatever, you know, language that is necessary for, for the situation. And I think, you know, you asked me a little bit about, or, or you touched upon uh, Marxism not being just a European thing, bro, exactly. You know what Marxism to me is about or an aspect of Marxism? Adapting to your local conditions, right? Man, it's mm -hmm. gonna be different in different places. This is why when I think about Latin American Marxism, obviously I start with somebody like uh, uh, Mariategui, right, in Peru. Like if any, like to any of the listeners who are curious about Latin American Marxism, if you have not read Mariategui's seven interpretive essays on Peruvian reality, bro, that's like the required reading. It's, it's I'll be the first to say that Portions of it are certainly a bit dated, right? It was definitely the, it was, God, what the early, I think it was like the 1920s maybe when it came out, 1930s or somewhere in the early uh, 20th century. But it really lays the foundations of what Mariotti, uh, you know, termed a, a, an American form of, uh, of socialism, right? Adapting socialism to our backgrounds, to our communities, right? And I think that's important, right? I don't believe in <laughs> just like cutting and pasting, right? I don't believe in like, Oh, okay. This is how it worked in China or Russia. Okay, we gotta. This is the ten point steps. We, that's what we gotta follow. No, you gotta adapt to your local conditions, right? Things are going to be different um, in different places, and I think that's so important to emphasize, especially when thinking about Latin America and thinking about the solidarity work uh, that we do in Latin America. Um, now, you also asked how my Latin American Marxism, uh, like kind of like feeds my experience on the NPC or, or in DSA in general. And to me, dude, it's foundational. <laughs> it's foundational. It's funny. When I first joined DSA, people used to ask me all the time, 
Um, in fact, I'm sure people ask you this all the time. I've probably asked you this question, which is, what made you a socialist, right? How did you become a socialist, right? That's the classic one-on-one -on -one question. And I remember when I would first get asked that, I wouldn't really know how to answer. And the reason was, you know, I've been a socialist for, God, for at least over 10 years now, right? I considered myself a socialist, you know, before the Bernie campaign. I have known about the, I had, I had known about DSA for years before I joined, you know? So it took me a while to really ask myself that question. Well, how did I, what, what did inspire me to become a socialist? What really brought me to that kind of direction? And <laughs> my ultimate conclusion is two words, Hugo Chavez, right? For me, is seeing the example of Venezuela, you know, growing up, seeing the example, you know, seeing Chavez's speech, you know, oh, the, the devil was here yesterday talking about George Bush, right? <laughs> it still smells of sulfur, you know, of course, that classic line. Seeing this That's brown the famous man. famous UN speech, I want to. <laughs> exactly. Worth, worth watching on YouTube, but sorry, go ahead, yeah. Bro, absolutely, thank you. And but just seeing, seeing this brown man, pull, you know, quoting Noam Chomsky, you know, thumping Noam Chomsky books at UN meetings saying, you know, talking about imperialism and talking about, you know, Latin American integration, Latin American unity under the banner of socialism was particularly inspiring for me, right? It's not that those experiences brought me to, you know, socialist theory, but they really helped define it for me, man. And that's why I tell people all the time, you know, when people ask me my tendency or say, oh, well, what the fuck, what kind of Marxist are you or whatever the fuck? I keep it very simple. I am a 21st century socialist, right? I like to, I like to embrace the tradition of Chavismo, right? The tradition of, of, of Latin American socialism that literally, like it says, that uh, came about in the 21st century. And I think, man, like, I don't want to just go into like a giant Chavez spiel, although his uh, death anniversary was uh, last week. So, you know, pouring out for the Comandante. I think once again, like fundamentally the experience of Venezuela and the Bolivarian Alliance, right? In Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, to me, it was foundational, um, at least for my growth as a Marxist and my growth uh, as a socialist. So that's an extremely long-winded way of answering your question. No, no, the, the longer, the better. That's always, it's always <laughs> interesting. You, you, there's so many good things that you, that you put in there, but I think... One thing that's really interesting interesting to me is how much you used your Latin American background, Caribbean background, whatever you want to call it, sure. in informing your politic within the U.S., you know, in the heart of the empire. Oh, dude. You know, like, dude. It, it's not the most common place to land within the United States. I'm talking literally within, you know, continental yeah. United States, whatever you want to call it, you know, like, I, I always make jokes that, like, at a certain point, socialism has to like go beyond the walls of Oberlin or something like that. Like, sure. you know, it's it's it uh, it's not just this white guy thing that that happens definitely. overwhelmingly. It, definitely not in the entire world, but in the United States, like for it to grow, it's going to have to grow out grow. of that or whatever. Um, of course, of course, I've met a lot of great white comrades that have been some of the best anti-racist organizers I've ever met. We love our white comrades. We we have great things in common with them, but. It, it's it's so important to remember the various ways that people get to these things. And so, you know, you're centering really a history that I'm going to go out on a limb that not even a lot of Latin American people are super familiar with within the United States. I mean, you know, just, just throwing it out there because there's so much, you know, red baiting, because there's so much propaganda from the imperial core against Chavez and against, you know, Bolivia has gotten totally. a lot better. It's gotten a lot better. <laughs> but, um, you know, Maduro is still, you know, what Venezuela oh, yeah. is subjected to and all these kinds of things. Um, sure. and, but you, you talked of that um, Boliviarian connection. There were, there were, I already mm -hmm. forgetting the title. Can you kind of talk to that a little bit more and, and give how you related to it and how you understood it and its history a little bit? Oh, dude, absolutely. So, so you're, what you are referring to is uh, ALBA, right? The Bolivarian Alliance for the Americas, right? Mm -hmm. Which, to me, this is so, so crucial, right? People, I think, need to remember how, like, for people who embrace open borders, right, as, as any proper leftist should, I, I would argue, I would think that the integration programs that the Bolivarians pursued should be appealing to people, Right. Because that is the that is the first step, in my opinion, toward open borders, right? Actual socialist 
regional integration, right? And that's why I think the project of ALBA in particular was was so important, right? It was continuing the um, Chavez would say, and not to get too weird and nationalistic here, but Chavez would say it was, was con uh, continuing the the dream of Bolivar, right? The dream of Latin American integration from the uh, from the early 19th century. Um, and I think that example in particular, of course, resonated with me as a Puerto Rican because of Puerto Rico's status as a, as a colony, right? I think like, oh man, uh, this isn't exactly ALBA related, but somewhat ALBA related. Uh, another similar institution, CELAC, right? The community of Latin American and Caribbean states, um, which is, uh, to be clear, it is essentially a regional international institution that includes every country in the hemisphere except the United States and Canada, right? Mm -hmm. So that's awesome in and of itself. Um, but, I, you know, I'll never forget at a CELAC meeting, uh, the Nicaraguan delegation um, at one point intentionally yielding their time to Ruben Barrios of the Puerto Rican Independence Party. And they said something to the effect of, we're yielding our time to Ruben because until Puerto Rico has a seat here, CELAC is not going to be uh, complete. And those, those feelings of integration, right? Those, the, the fact that, God, one of my favorite Fidel Castro quotes, right? Which is, uh, as long as there's one Puerto Rican that is in favor of independence, it is a moral duty for us to support them, right? That sort of love that is shown across the region, you know, it, it really, it has consistently meant a lot to me as a Puerto Rican. And especially because when I think about Puerto Rican independence, I like to say that, and I'm totally shifting gears at this point, but I like to say that I believe in Puerto Rican independence, not because I'm a nationalist, but because I'm an internationalist, right? Because for me, the future of Puerto Rico, it doesn't end with independence, right? For me, Puerto Rico would also ideally be pursuing those sort of integration uh, agreements, right? Integrating ideally with the Caribbean, right? It makes, it breaks my heart when I hear people like uh, the president of the Dominican Republic, Luis Abinader, it breaks my heart when I hear him say foul shit like, oh, maybe we need a border wall here to keep, you know, keep the Haitians out. Like, what the fuck? How can anybody be arguing to be putting up more borders in the Caribbean? You know, that just blows my mind. It blows my mind that, you cannot simply take a ferry or a boat or whatever the fuck from San Juan to Santiago, Cuba. That's like literally against the laws of nature. How the fact that you can't do that is mind blowing to me. The fact that you can't take a ferry or whatever from from Ponce to Caracas, right? Which, uh, to be clear, Venezuela is the closest uh, actual continental landmass to Puerto Rico. The fact that you can't do that, it's mind blowing to me, man. So once again, before I get on a wild tangent of Puerto Rican independence, that's what the Bolivarian connection, as you said, or the Bolivarian alliance, that's what it meant to me, man. That, that was, to me, why, <laughs> why that project in particular. In fact, uh, another point, that's why that project in particular was super important. And what's funny, you'll notice, anytime a right-wing government has taken over a left-wing one in Latin America, what's the first thing they do? They shred the regional agreements. That's the first thing they do, man. When the coup government took power in Bolivia, the first one of the first things they did, we're getting out of Alba, we're getting out of Unasur, right? Andres Arauz in Ecuador right now, who's you know been campaigning for president, going to the runoff, blah, blah, blah. One of his campaign promises is to bring back Unasur, which to be clear is the union of South American nations, which is kind of like the, the South American specific sort of regional organization. Because that's a really important thing for them, man. Like that's, once again, for me, a proper leftist uh, should be fighting for open borders. And to me, that is a, that is a, a manifest, that can be a manifestation of it, right? And also to be clear, I'm not talking about bullshit neoliberal institutions like the EU. I'm talking about actual socialist integration, which I think is very, very different. It's the sort of integration that led to Venezuela giving discounted oil to Haiti, right? That's the sort of regional integration I believe in. Not a regional integration that says, oh, okay, Haiti, we'll give you this giant loan and haha, figure it out, guys. That's not regional integration, man. That's paternalism, right? And that's not what we need. What we need is actual regional integration that sees, you know, the you know, wealthier nations helping out poorer ones, right? And that's that that is the beauty of my kind of like uh, United Latin America. And I'll I'll hop off my soapbox now, but yeah. 
those are my thoughts on that. This whole episode is going to be a soapbox, so don't don't. don't <laughs> We'll be good. It it's a clean slate after this. So that that's something that I have been something contending in my own brain that uh, I think not as a Puerto Rican, but as as a Marxist, as a leftist and thinking about nationalism and thinking about nationhood and, and Puerto Rico is such an interesting place. Ireland is also a very interesting place to think about these things, land back for native rights throughout the world. In what role does nationalism play not in, not necessarily an organizing effort not in like well we need to appeal to certain nationalist tendencies in these groups yeah. not so much in that regard but in the thoughts of forming a, 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 a politic around if we support open borders then what is the point of having a nation in the first place yeah. what is the point of having a border in the first place if all we want it to be is open and i i, I don't mean sure. that to be kind of antagonistic but you know, what sets the nations apart. And I think, I don't know, not to get a cart in front of the horse here, but to me, the thinking around it is that at a certain point, then those start to melt away. Then Absolutely. those start to become a path towards a stateless class of society. Is that a one-to-one? Is that an immediate thing? Is that going to happen tomorrow? No, of course not. You know, we're, we, we know the historical development of all of these things, but the easier it is getting rid of quotas from saying only certain number of people from certain nations can come, you know, to the United States or something like that, or stripping away so many meaningless things that, that prevent people from coming in and then, you know, getting super selective about people. I mean, that, that is all a part of opening up the borders in, in immediate ways. Let's say if socialism were enacted tomorrow or something like that. So how do you kind of like juggle those two in your mind? You've said so many great things so far about like, the important importance of interregional activity and and cooperation and true like people first so a worker first mentality of what open borders should be and what what yeah. moral purpose they serve. But how do you like use Puerto Rico? Let's let's shift a little to Puerto sure. Rico. How does that? Why need a Puerto Rican nation first and not just uh, as opposed to statehood, as opposed to whatever else it could be? Totally. So, so many thoughts. And I'm, and I'm glad you asked that question, right? Very important question. I think first, uh, before I even get to the example of Puerto Rico, I think to answer the general question, right, as far as, you know, nationhood within open borders, I think the uh, Bolivian case in particular is very instructive here, right? And uh, another thing I often say is that I, you know, I would love to see more people within the U.S. left because I think this would be a, a very important thing for us to embrace here, uh, to embrace plurinationalism, right? And to me, it's a both, it's a both and, right? It doesn't have to be an either or. You know, plurinationalism being the idea that you know we are all respective of our different, you know, unique backgrounds, right? Our unique identities, right? But we're all under, in the Bolivian case, all under that Bolivian socialist umbrella, right? They're all under that Bolivian uh, sovereign entity, so to speak. That doesn't mean Aymaras aren't Aymara, right? That doesn't mean different ind- indigenous groups are not, you know, uh, from their different backgrounds. So I think that's that's really important. I think when I think about the Puerto Rican case in particular, you know, nationalism, in my opinion, is, you know, it's going to be different in the third world, right? Especially in the case of Puerto Rico, which, as you mentioned, is particularly unique, uh, unique right? Since Puerto Rico is still a colony, naturally, in my opinion, at least, any sort of liberation struggle within Puerto Rico is going to take some sort of nationalist bent. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, man. I think, in my mind at least, one of the biggest reasons for that is just uh, the, when I think about the Puerto Rican example in particular, the the reaction to United States domination, so to speak. Now, now what do I mean by that, right? What I mean by that is the reaction to the repression that the United States did in Puerto Rico, right? During the, during the 1950s, right? During really throughout the entire 20th century, but in particular during the 1950s. I think about the gag law, the law that banned the display, displaying of the Puerto Rican flag, right? I think of, uh, God, I think about the attempts to change the name of the island, right? To, to anglicize it, so to speak. And it's been that, you know, that, that stubborn refusal to submit to U.S. domination that has led to a uh, that has led to God. How would I describe this? I don't know if I'd say a, a 
nationalistic culture of Puerto Ricans, but bro, you're in Chicago. How many Puerto Rican flags do you see on a regular basis, right? We love the flag, right? Have you been to Humboldt Park? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, bro. (laughs) And and what people got to understand is there's historical reasons for that, right? You you, you bring up the case of Ireland, right? That's That's a really important, you know, analogy that I, that I use as well, right? There's a reason that the Irish embrace the Irish language and then their Catholic identity the way they do, right? <laughs> you know, that's what's brought them this far, you know? And, and I think the same of Puerto Rico, right? Our flag is one of the things that has brought us this far and has kept us united. And once again, this, as you kind of mentioned at the, at the beginning of this, for some leftists, that can be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation, but I think it's so important to point out the differences between nationalism within the third world as opposed to nationalism within the first world, right? I think, and especially, especially nationalism within a colonial struggle or an anti-colonial struggle, I guess I, that'd be a proper way of saying that. And yeah, like I think, I, once again, I go back to I go back to it being a response to the repression from the United States. And it's amazing to me, bro. It's amazing to me. How, goodness, over 100 years of colonial domination of the United States, right? And still, you know, still people wave the flag throughout, throughout the United States as well, right? And I think that's, uh, I think that's, an, I think it's important for Puerto Ricans to embrace that memory, right? To remember why we wave the flag. There's a reason for that, man. There's a reason why people all wave the flag the way they do. And once again, it's because of that, that, that repression from the United States. That's basically a super duper roundabout way of saying, yeah, nationalism is very important to the Puerto Rican struggle. Yeah, I think it reminds me of a, a sentiment that that Lenin wrote about when he studied like at like the struggle for, you know, civil rights and, and black freedom in the United States at the sure. time is that he, he came up with the saying, you know, that the African-Americans in the United States faced a special oppression. Totally. And it go it speaks to that point. And I think, you know, I, I tried to ignore it earlier, but it's hard to ignore that it is an organizing point as well, right? It is a, mm-hmm. a support point. It is a rallying point of some kind to understand that there is a distinct difference between someone sig heiling and someone, you know, trying to open a cultural center for black and brown youth exactly, or something bro. like that. Like those are two very distinctly different things, very distinct yes. consequences. One is survival, one is domination. Right. Exactly. And, and the politic of ever saying, well, that's too much. You know, do you have to be so <laughs> loud? Like it's it, if it's coming from, you know, it, it's another way of domination in, in a way, I think, in that sure. regard. And I think another point, too, that when you were speaking, I kind of thought of is like it never made sense to me throughout my lifetime politically why Puerto Rico was still under this colonial Mm-hmm. you know, auspice, not just as a leftist, not just like, you know, any of that. It never made sense to me. Like, why would the ruling power, if I'm thinking as the ruling power, if I'm thinking as the United States, what does it benefit me to have this as a colony? The next natural step for me, if I'm the ruling power, if I'm the United States, is that statehood is the next most beneficial thing for me. If I'm, sure. you know, the president, if I'm, if I'm Congress, if I'm business, if I'm capital, you know, mm-hmm. looking to expand within that, w- within there, you know, the, it, it just, from a PR standpoint, statehood is better for them, yep. for, the, for the bourgeois, all the ruling class. So for any leftist to like really say, or even, you know, well-meaning liberal, let's be generous. I usually am never this generous, but let's just be generous for a moment. Statehood is the next step from colonialism for them. Independence has always been the next step for anything. It has always been the constant counter answer to whatever Puerto Rico has been going through and whatever it has been under Mm -hmm. from from a true liberation standpoint, from a true self-determination standpoint for the Puerto Rican people, for a true control over your own land, goods, culture, all of these things. But it's, I, I hope that kind of, I know I'm, it's a little bit complicated and I'm trying to not make it so complex, but <laughs> statehood is the, is the natural next step from a colonialism for those in yeah. the ruling power. And to frame it as such, it's like, well, we need to move on from this outdated mode 
you know, colonies are kind of gauche now. We shouldn't have colonies anymore. Uh, let's just make them a state. That's not, that is still a, a, a perspective for a white, you know, for, for mm-hmm. the mainland to feel happy with. Um, exceptionalism. It is. It's a, it's a form of exceptionalism. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's an iteration of it. And it, it, to not even let it enter your mind, could they be their own country? Like, fuck you. You know, let, that's a, yep. that's a massive fuck you. And I, I, I'm trying to connect all these things together because I think that further shows that this has to be the natural position for socialists to take in regards to the island. Totally. So, bro, a thousand things to say to all of that. So first, oh, man, like, I think the experience you describe as far as growing up and thinking, well, wait, what the fuck is Puerto Rico really? Like even before you were, you know, you know, uh, a socialist or even political. I think this is an experience that all Puerto Ricans kind of go through, right? Or at least I certainly went through that in the in the diaspora. I should be clear, which is like, well, well what the hell is a territory really, right? Like I remember growing up and thinking, oh yeah, territory, oh yeah, it's a territory, it's a territory. And then you know, getting older and getting in high school and thinking, well, what the hell does that mean really? <laughs> and it doesn't take many segments of thought to then realize that territory just means colony, right? Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. Nobody on the island would dispute that. Even the most right-wing of statehooder would call it a colony. It's interesting. I'll use my own political trajectory here as a bit of an example and a little bit of a breaking down of the statehood independence debate and how socialists should feel, right? You know, because I, of course, have (laughs) strong views on this. I know you do as well, my friend. That's why I love you. Um, but yeah, so I, in high school, I was a statehooder. I was your average run of the mill Puerto Rican diaspora, your diasporican statehooder. Uh, I wouldn't say liberal. It was a bit more progressive than a liberal. I would, I would argue, but I was a statehooder, right? Now one might ask, well, what changed your opinion? A few things. So I remember in 2009, the now governor of Puerto Rico, interestingly enough, uh, Pedro Pierluisi, back when he was the island's uh, what they call resident commissioner, which is the non-voting delegate that Puerto Rico sends to Congress. I remember in 2009, Pierluisi sponsoring what was known as the Puerto Rico Democracy Act. And this was essentially a bill that would have uh, paved the way toward uh, a process for statehood for Puerto Rico, because, you know, Pierre Luis is a statehood. And I was a statehood at the time, so I, you know, thought it was cool. I supported it. And then, and this, <laughs> I should say, this might be amusing to you as a Chicagoan, what I'm about to say. And then I saw somebody in Congress make a very impassioned debate uh, or argument against statehood. And that was Luis Gutierrez, right? Back when he was in Congress. Yep. And here's the thing. Say, say we will about Luis Gutierrez, right? I'll be the, once again, you're a Chicago and I'm sure you can tell me all about the not great things that he's done. <laughs> when he was in Congress, he was the fiercest anti-statehood voice uh, as far as Puerto Rican diaspora, the diaspora members in Congress. And when I saw Luis Gutierrez call out the process, right? He called out how much of a joke it was, man. He called out how much they were intentionally trying to force a statehood result so that they could force statehood through. When I saw that, you know, it really, and this was my statehood brain at the time, right? When I saw that, I thought to myself, I was like, well, wait a minute. This dude's like on the left of this issue, but he's arguing against statehood from the left. And it just like blew my mind, my young high school brain. And when that happened, I began to study the, the history of Puerto Rico, really, in ways that I hadn't before. And I learned about the Nationalist Party of the, the 30s and the 50s led by Abuzu Campos, right? I learned about how the United States and the, you know, the colonial government cracked down on the independence movement consistently, right? I learned how they imprisoned Albizu, how they tortured him for, for a decade, man. They imprisoned and tortured him for a decade. I learned how, you know, I learned about the 1954 attempt by, uh, or as we like to call it, the first uh, delegation from Puerto Rico to Congress, <laughs> um, when Lolita Lebron and uh, um, and you know a couple a couple other nationalists went to Congress and literally opened fire on members of Congress, nobody died, right? So no, let's be clear there. <laughs> um, but that is a thing that happened. You know, I learned about that. I learned about the independence movement and the Socialist Party in Puerto Rico during the 70s and the 80s, right? I learned about the many failed plebiscites, the many failed referendums, and I learned fundamentally how the United States doesn't give a fuck about Puerto Rico. Not only that, I I think back, you know, I I don't understand how anybody can, how any Puerto Rican, right, can support statehood, can support union 
with the United States, knowing about the sterilizations, man, knowing about the, the which I should be clear, you know, the United States uh, sterilized a third of Puerto Rican women during the, the mid uh, 20th century, right? Um, during like when eugenics programs were kind of prevalent. That's where, you know, that's where a lot of birth control pills were tested on Puerto Rican women, right? Women of color, you know, this was also an attempt to whiten the population, once again, to prepare it for statehood, right? By intentionally sterilizing women of color, right? That's, a, I think that's another important angle, man, right? <laughs> the suppression of independence, the intentional promotion of statehood, the intentional promotion of U.S. nationalism, the, the constant, constant, never-ending propaganda that, you know, Puerto Ricans running their own country, <laughs> that's impossible, right? That kind of shit, which, you know, you hear very often. And I think fundamentally, as a socialist, I think, okay, I think a couple things, right? As far as, you know, the question of how socialists should be approaching this issue and, you know, supporting independence. I'll say two things. I think it is absolutely incumbent upon people in the United States to be first and foremost supporting a fair process of self-determination and decolonization decided by and for Puerto Ricans. Now, what the fuck does that mean, right? <laughs> what the fuck does self-determination decolonization mean? Well, what that means is that most of the referendums that people see, right, the, the up or down statehood vote or the, uh, you know, multiple options, you know, whatever, a lot of Puerto Ricans don't give a fuck or vote in these referendums. You want to know why? They're non-binding. Like, I love when people quote the most recent statehood up or down vote that happened in November. Literally, like, months before that vote went on the ballot, the U.S. Department of Justice literally came out and said, oh, yeah, this vote's bullshit, and literally we're going to ignore the results. How anybody can cite that poll as, like, a, represented, a representation of the will of Puerto Ricans is truly mind-boggling to me, especially considering when considering that the statehood governor, right, the governor who got elected from the statehood party, he won with 33% of the vote. Nearly 70% of people did not vote for him, which is why I think it's It's important to be extraordinarily clear. Statehood has never had a majority, man. It just hasn't. Now, does that mean independence has had a majority? No, I'm not going to say that. But when you combine independence um, when you combine independence with uh, what they call free association or, or, or sovereignty, right, which is a whole other concept, and when you combine it with commonwealth or status quo, whatever, once again, whatever the fuck you want to call it, there has never been an actual majority for statehood on the island. That's just a fact, which is why, <laughs> which is why a process of self-determination decided by and for Puerto Ricans is so important. Once again, what the hell do I mean by that? This is what I mean. Right now, in the last few years on the island of Puerto Rico, a new kind of like, I guess, left populist sort of big tent party has uh, been has become a bit of a political force. The uh, Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana, right, MVC. And one of their big platform proposals that they've pushed, uh, one of the big ideas that they've kind of sold people on is this idea of a, uh, a status assembly is what they call it. Now, that would essentially function as a kind of like a constitutional convention to be held on the island, you know, with delegates, with, you know, input from everybody, specifically to decide the status. And I think that's, that is the kind of process that Puerto Ricans deserve. It's the kind of process that Puerto Ricans have literally never been able to have on the island, right? And I think that's at the very least what the United States can, can, can allow for, a binding process of status, of, of a status assembly, I should add. Which, shout out, uh, DSA elected, right, mm -hmm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has co-sponsored legislation in the House with Nadia Velasquez to do just that. So isn't that great? Don't we love our electeds, people? <laughs> I think you had a lot to do with that. Let's not, let's not get it twisted. <laughs> you had a lot to hey. do with that. Hey, bro, I will, before you even say anything like that, I can only credit the organizers that actually put in the work to make this happen. So it was a lot of people made that happen. So a lot of people deserve credit. But to answer the second part of that question, right, I firmly so, – so the first part of that status assembly, right, that's what I think people in the United States should be thinking. When it comes to socialists, right, when it comes to me, I love to say socialists believe in liberation, not annexation, right? To me, if you're a socialist, what you should be calling for is independence and reparations, motherfucker. I'm sorry if I just said F on your podcast. I don't know oh, if that's cool. More than, just happened. More than well. Um, okay. <laughs> I think because, bro, in fact, speaking of the the man himself, Bernie Sanders, it was just, uh, well, I guess not super official yet, but 
it was it is now rumored right it is now publicly rumored and i you know i may or may not have extra information on that you know i'll leave that undisclosed for now it's march it 9th. Been... It's, it, this will be released <laughs> in a couple days but march 9th and right now okay <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> thank you okay thank you for not making me look like a dumbass okay so <laughs> yeah so bernie so if any okay so by the time this is released it'll probably be official that bernie has introduced similar legislation in the senate now why has bernie done that because he's a socialist and socialists believe in liberation not annexation man independence and reparations, not just for Puerto Rico, man, for all the territories, dude. If there's anything that frustrates me occasionally with certain veins of Puerto Rican nationalism or independentismo, right, is when people forget about the Virgin Islands, man, which are literally right off the fucking coast of Puerto Rico. People forget about Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the indigenous territories, man. Independence and reparations for fucking all of them, dude. All of them, right? I think that's extremely important. I think that's incumbent upon socialists, right? Now, once again, when I say independence for Puerto Rico, am I talking about a a nationalistic sort of independence? No. My vision of independence for Puerto Rico is one that pursues integration with the region, man. Pursues integration with the Caribbean. Tears down that goddamn border between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, right? We in Puerto Rico, we love our Dominicans, right? I'd love to bring more Dominicans to Puerto Rico. Everybody, let's all, let us all visit the islands, right? Bro, how dope would it be to be <laughs> in a United Caribbean and just island hopping? I mean, Jesus Christ. How is that <laughs> How is that not something that everybody's fighting for? Well, there, there's a lot of things in there that I, I, I want to grab onto and latch onto. And it's something that you've talked about in your podcast before, too. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we have a chance to kind of give a little bit more of a deep dive to it. But the, the question of studying your history... And you were talking about being in high school and, and having these questions and mm-hmm. having this interest in these things. I think it's interesting for me personally. I mean, like, I, I first had a, a, an interest when it came to, like, identity politics in mm-hmm. civil rights, in, you know, studying Martin Luther King. And if I, you know, I was lucky, more advanced Malcolm X, and then got more lucky yeah. and was exposed to the Black Panthers, and then was even more lucky and exposed to the Brown Berets, and then even more fortunate that I was exposed <laughs> to the Young Lords. There we go. And it wasn't until I was, you know, in graduate school that you'd even learn about the Young Patriots organization, which also worked mm. closely with Puerto Ricans and, you know, yep. black black activist organizers here, especially in, the, in Chicago. But the Young Lords being a very interesting diasporican movement oh yeah there there is a lot written on all the great work that the panthers did and without the panthers Mm -hmm. the young lords would not have been able to i think make it into the history books or or have even has been as impactful as they could have been here in Mm -hmm. chicago specifically i'm thinking about here in chicago but when you hear about all the work that the young lords were doing in lincoln park here in the city in logan square like my mom is is she's not that far removed from driving through Lincoln Park, the neighborhood here, and being like, it's still so weird to me that it's so white. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln Park has been gentrified forever. It, wow. it's, it's hard to think of it as not the whitest neighborhood in the city. But it's still weird to her, just from the 50s and 60s, uh, in the 70s even, that like everyone's in Humble Park now. Like that's it, And it's been that mm-hmm. way for, for years. Um, overwhelmingly, every there's a, you know even the diaspora of Puerto Ricans within Chicago is all over the place, but like like that's still so odd. But the Young Lords in particular, you know, my grandfather was just part of like a, a fraternal club. It was you know just the Puerto Ricans coming in the mid fifties, nothing really you know super serious. And then the Young Lords come along, and you have radicalism being inherent to the port to the organizing politic around Puerto Rican identity. And even more than that, you have a really interesting phenomenon that an over like a, a fairly large amount of young lords had never even been to the island. Probably maybe, you know, a lot of them probably, you know, maybe they didn't even speak Spanish. That's kind of more speculation, but yep. it's definitively proven that like a lot of them hadn't hadn't even been to the island, but independence was always in their hearts. Yep. The Puerto Rican identity was always in their hearts. So I, I think you and I maybe have talked about this book before, but imagine communities by Benedict Anderson. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with that one. I'm not too familiar. That sounds cool, though. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I've talked about it with other people regarding Puerto Rico, but it's it has this amazing 
trajectory of thought and, and, and the study in saying how does identity get formed through non, you know, just it, w- without it being so immediate as, as uh, something that you see right in front of you every day or even more complex than that. I always like to use sports as a really good example. How does somebody across the world get really into like soccer in England or something like that yep. or, or in Argentina or, uh, you know, something along those lines? Um, that's a really good example for it. But Puerto Rico is another really good example because we hear these stories growing up. We have these questions growing up. We're told, I can speak for myself here, we're told we're Puerto Rican. And my relationship to that as in high school as a kid was like almost kind of a mockery of Puerto Rico. If I'm going to be totally honest, it was like, who do they, why do they have a flag? They're not a country. Why do they yep. have an Independence Day? They're not a country. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like my, you know, my, my mom being like, you know, you're Puerto Rican, right? I'm like, yeah, but I don't get it. Like, it's just a bunch of cousins that I'm supposed to know. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? And it, it plays into, there's a small bit, too, that you have talked about on your podcast about the, the politic of self-hatred, to oh, put yeah. it bluntly, just to, to, to be super upfront about it. The politic of, like, the self-hating brown person. Maybe, it, you know, I think it does go so far as saying we're too dumb to run our own country. Who, who do we think we are? You know, I think that happens as well. But also sure. in just the self, it, it's in this defeatism as well. It's in this just acceptance that you have been beaten by the empire. And yep. you, it, maybe it's not even that cognizant, but that is so inherent to it. And Americanization, that's something that my family did uh, full steam ahead, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, oh, yeah. we're, we're half Mexican, half Puerto Rican on my mom's side and native on my dad's side. Um, and it was two like different ways to relate to our identities on my dad's side. He was going through, he wanted to learn more about his native past. We would do like native ceremony, all these things like the good, the, the, the good, uh, cultural moments and things like that. It's amazing. On my mom's side, you know, we didn't hide it. We, you know, we knew we spoke Spanish. Uh, <laughs> we, we spoke Spanish all the time. Um, my grandmother's, uh, my grandmother would always be in, in tune with, uh, especially Mexican politics cause she was Mexican. My mm. grandfather was Puerto Rican and he passed away before I was born. RIP. Yeah. Yeah. But always having <laughs> Telemundo on or Univision on sure. something, something Spanish speaking in the background and, and cuisine, you know, immensely. But it's so much so to the point where I didn't know what was Mexican and what was Puerto Rican because we'd go to family mm-hmm. parties and it was just all blended together. So sure. it was like, that's kind of a beauty of it, I guess. That's like a, a happy accident. But that that happened all the time. So I'm, sure. I'm rambling to all these points into saying like for my grandmother and my grandfather to a large extent as well, because I know what he did, you know, and leading up to it, he fought for the American army, like in Korea. And he was in the national Mm -hmm. guard during that, at least during the war. I don't know if he was there, but it being a thing of wanting to whitewash and wanting to be Mm -hmm. American, wanting to be definitely. And it it didn't always have to be in a shame of your past, but progress meant coming to the mainland, coming to the United States and forging a new path here because you could exist here, but you you wanted to take on this new identity because that meant mm-hmm. better. That just meant improvement. That meant yep. opportunity. That meant, they didn't think of it this way, but it meant better capitalism, I think, you know, yep. ultimately. And that coupled with being able to, like, you know, there's a famous thing that happened in, in Chicago that's documented as well in a great book called Brown in the Windy City. I highly recommend mm. everybody pick it up. Um, that sounds cool. It, it, it This was like a known, it was a documented thing where white passing Spanish speakers could move into nicer neighborhoods because everybody thought they were Italian. Mm. Everybody yep. thought they they were just, That's you know, amazing. the grandmother, you know, oh, they're from the old country. <laughs> let them in, you know, like let them. So my That's family, a different dialect. Yeah, yeah. They, they you know, the Maria, oh, Sebastian. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are Italian enough names. So like That's my family amazing. grew up in Cicero. Because uh, they have incredibly fair skin, but they spoke nothing but Spanish, just pure Spanish. And they, they got away with it. And it happened a lot. It happened in a lot of That's places. That's amazing. Darker skin people, uh, the racism was rampant. And the red line, I mean, like, it was just, for whatever reason, this is how it played out. And these, those are the reasons. But it, it, it wasn't so much like, I think it was a part of saying, well, that's what we did back then, you know. 
yeah. growing up on a farm or growing up, you know, on the island, that's what we did before. Now yep. we work in a factory and we have great union jobs. Now we're sending yep. our kids to college. Now, you know, third generation, they're, you know, they're college, they live in the burbs now. Like that's just what you do. And there's so much intrinsic self-hatred, self-control, self, you oh, know, yeah. like wanting to monitor yourself in all of that. Because ultimately, it's a denial of saying, or or it's it's admitting saying we have to be a certain way in order to be better than we were before, and what we were before was worse. Ab- and, absolutely. Yeah. So that's Sorry, a long yeah. that's a long no. It's a long rant of saying it's hard. And the only places where I have ever been told I'm I'm jamming this in here because this is the last point I want to make. The only places I have ever been told I'm not brown enough, not Mexican, not Puerto Rican enough, anything like that has overwhelmingly been in liberal spaces overwhelmingly been in bullshit rad lib identitarian spaces socialist spaces yeah they 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 ask you for your blood quantum sometimes right yeah you i you know (laughs) i feel yo i feel like sometimes people are ready to pull out like their 18th century like caste system list and be like oh nope you're a fucking you know whatever and it's just like oh well okay looks like i'm not in the crew anymore like it's yeah no I, i totally know what you're saying and it's it gets so draining because like white liberals will pander to you mm-hmm. and brown liberals will say no i'm the brown one no i'm the brown mm-hmm. one who the fuck uh, sure. like you what what brown we, you're not playing into the stereotype that they have created for us so why do you think yep. that you get to say you're that you're brown when anything i do is brown Anything I do exactly, is bro. native. Anything I do is Puerto Rican or Mexican. To me, the main distinguishers that, and maybe this is not supposed to be some post-racial kind of theory. This mm-hmm. is all connected. But the thing that makes it good or bad or good politic or bad politic is going to be the politics. It's going to be the ideology. Yep. It's going Absolutely. to be the socialism, the Marxism, the communism that I hold in my heart. That makes it totally. differentiated. Differentiated. And... I I I hate it. I just I hate it. Yo, I, I, yeah. And yo, what's funny as hell to me is that I think I'm a, a little bit darker skinned than you, right? And yet you speak way better Spanish than I do. <laughs> Who who's who's the more Puerto Rican? Who's right. the more non-white? Right? It's all fucking subjective, especially when we're talking about Latin America, right? And God, you, you talk about a lot of experiences that that resonate with me, man. Which is why, once again, appreciate. DSA, right? (laughs) For bringing us together, right? For showing me how many people there are out there that are, that are the same as me, right? That had similar experiences as, as I did, right? So I, like I said, I speak awful Spanish and, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. So I was born in Richmond, right? I have lived in Virginia my entire life. So I tell people all the time, like it, it it wasn't being Brown in a place like Virginia, it doesn't take a lot to turn you into a leftist, right? <laughs> I can't even tell you. Sure. But I used to, I used to live deep in like the the uh, deep in some of like the rural counties in central Virginia, bro. If I ever get stopped by cops, it's always what you doing around here, boy. Literally, man, <laughs> literally. Yeah. So like, it, it didn't take long for me to think, oh, okay, well, these motherfuckers don't want me here. Um, which once again was. A reminder to me that, okay, uh, so I will never be, uh, quote unquote, white enough for anybody, right? Whatever the fuck that means. And it was, it wasn't until I was embraced by some of the different, uh, or let me put it this way. (laughs) It wasn't until I actually became a, a member, I should say, of the Hispanic community within Virginia, because when I was born in Virginia in the early 90s, the Hispanic population was a bit lower, right? Now there is a, a massive Central American diaspora in particular in Northern Virginia. In fact, Northern Virginia is the only, or I should say the D.C. area in general, is the only place in the country where Hispanics are actually a Salvadoran majority, right? So it's kind of like filters throughout the culture here. And these were the first spaces where I encountered people that, you know, actually began to <laughs> accept me, right? That began to accept my... I don't know, my brownness, right? If that's a phrase. But it wasn't until I engaged, you know, things, the conditions in Virginia and, the, and Illinois are different, right? But it wasn't until I engaged with, I should say, online leftists, right? That I began to see some of that like blood quantum kind of shit, 
right? Of like, oh, okay, well, did you fucking, you know, meet all these different criteria? Like I said, like a fucking caste system list, right? And it makes me sad. <laughs> it makes me sad because to me, in my mind, man, especially, especially in Puerto Rico and with Puerto Ricans, you know, a lot of Puerto Ricans are, for all intents and purposes, a, a displaced people, man. So when I see people trying to create conditions for how Puerto Rican you are, or, or what your Puerto Ricanness is to me, that's damaging, right? It is damaging to, it's damaging to the people, right? It's damaging to the culture, so to speak. And I, this is where I'm going to have to shout out my homeboy, Leroy, right? Mm-hmm. One of my homie, one of my co-hosts on my podcast, uh, Leroy, you know, Leroy, in my mind, Leroy is somebody that I look at as quote unquote, more Puerto Rican than me in my fucked up self-hating brain, right? So it wasn't until somebody like Leroy said to me, you know, no, man, that's bullshit. You are just as Puerto Rican as I am. That really it kind of like clicked in my brain, man, that like no matter what. And I'll tell this to you, man. I say this to anybody, dude. If you even have like a fucking Puerto Rican, like you say, a Puerto Rican grandparent, you know, whatever it is, whatever your connection to the island is. If you no matter what anybody says, you are Puerto Rican, right? And that is how I look at myself, too. It doesn't no matter what anybody says, nothing will change the fact that whenever any white person in Virginia asks me, well, where are you from? Well, what are you? Well, what the hell is your background? Right. Nothing will ever change the fact that my answer to that question every single time was I'm Puerto Rican. Nothing can erase that. <laughs> nothing can change that history. So, yeah, that's that's my roundabout way of uh, of uh, answering that question on identity, because. It's especially it's especially prevalent in a situation like Puerto Rico, where there, you know, oh my goodness, just like any country, I suppose. But things get tribal, right? Mm-hmm. Especially between the island population and the diaspora at times. And I'm a unity kind of guy. I believe in popular fronts. So, yeah, I think in the two biggest ways, the last thing I'll say is like the two biggest ways that this gets tested. Really, I mean, it's a test. Is I think through what you consume and how you behave particularly around white people. Oh, there you go, buddy. You know, it's a weird thing where I think this is a generational thing a bit too, where like my mom will, however she was brought up, whatever, maybe I shouldn't throw her under the bus that much, but (laughs) a lot of uh, brown uh, people from her generation that I grew up around, when they're around white people, it's, you know, they change their name, they change their pronunciation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they make, they, they crack Really, sh- you know, you remember that that really stupid Kamala Harris joke of yep. uh, you know, well, I I inhaled or whatever the, the fuck she said, and her dad <laughs> like fucking dragged her, rightfully so. Yeah. Um, like yeah, I've seen that happen my whole life. Like that's just as part of the, uh, that's just as much a part of the brown experience as like being from the island in the United States. Yep. Like that that is that is a part of being brown is doing that. Um, Absolutely. So like that's a big piece of it, but also through that which you consume. You know, uh, you know what kind of coffee do you drink? Where do you eat? <laughs> yep. What do? Where do you like? What's your favorite restaurant in the neighborhood? Um, you know, what do you eat at holiday time? Like that all has yeah. been marked. Some of it's fun. Some of it's you know weird, <laughs> right? Like yeah. gatekeeping shit. But like that's all a part of the whatever the modern version of the paper bag test is, or something like that. And that that I, I think is is that's definitely worth noting. That's worth like keeping an eye on as well. And and, and like, because it's, it's like I said, anything you know. Uh, uh, if I'm eating a burger, it's a Puerto Rican eating a burger. If I'm eating a hibarito, it's go. a Puerto Rican eating a hibarito. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, fuck you. <laughs> like, just I love it. Let me be. Um, so I, I want to wrap up. Uh, this has been a really fun talk, and I have gotten to ramble, which is always uh, a fun time. And you have as well, and I loved hearing it. One of the last things I want to ask, and we touched upon it a little bit earlier, uh, is about how great we're, how happy we are with how the DSA members are, are particular AOC and, and uh, Bernie isn't an a, a DSA member, but you know his his socialist mm-hmm. politic in regards to in, independence uh, for Puerto Rico. What is as an NPC member? Let's make this official. And, and <laughs> as just a rank and file DSA member, what is your dream for a formal relationship with electeds at the national level between DSA and them? What does that relationship look like going forward? Is it just 
ah, you know, thank God so-and-so got elected and thank God they have good politic and thank God we endorse them or something. Or is it something way more formal? And what does that formality look like? Well, it's got to be more formal, right? You know, uh, sure, I suppose there is something to be said to, oh, well, look, we got somebody elected, oh, with great publicity, right? But to me, that's not building any fucking power, right? You know, first of all, I think first and foremost, and I think this is something that the organization has improved on in the last few years. It's definitely my belief that uh, endorsing and campaigning for open socialists, that's crucial, right? It makes me sad to see that any times that does not happen, right? Um, that is to say, uh, campaigning for people who are not open socialists. I think that's important. Here's what I think. In order to have electeds that actually are more in line with the goals of the organization, what is crucial, what is crucial is actually having, actually having people that are prepared to work in the offices of these electeds, right? People who are actually prepared to actually engage with these electeds on a local level, right? And I think that's crucial if we want to be able to actually grow the organization to a place where we can actually, let's be frank, hold our electeds accountable. I don't know that right now DSA is in a place where it can properly hold its electeds accountable. I think that's a place where we all want to get, right? Can, you can know, you I speak to that a little bit more. What is holding accountable look like? So here's what I would say. I think first, so I'm always going to approach things from an internationalist perspective, right? I would love to see DSA get to a place where we can really hold our elected speech at the fire when it comes to bullshitting on international issues, man. When it comes to voting for fucking like fucked up defense budgets, right? Things like that, dude. Like I think I think it's important to and I think the only way we can get to that place once again is actually engaging with elected offices directly because in my mind from my vantage point, and let me be extraordinarily clear, I think we've improved on this in the last few years, but from my vantage point, a lot of a lot of early electoral victories, not all of them, not all of them, but a lot of early electoral victories kind of played out in the way that you described, right? Which is, oh yeah, we just got somebody elected, that's cool. And then they'd either probably maybe not distance themselves from DSA, but we might not be first on their list for hires, right? When it comes to staff, which dude, like I emphasize the staff again and again, and I know people love to make jokes about people just getting jobs on political campaigns or whatever the fuck, but dude, it's fucking crucial, man. Like if you don't have people on the fucking staff, it's just a motherfucker to actually get any sort of actual direct contact to even begin the conversation of holding our electeds accountable. Um, But bro, let's be completely honest here. This is a part of a much broader conversation of how DSA should be relating to electoral politics in general, right? I think if we just zero in on the aspect of holding electeds accountable, like, once again, that's just a whole – that it, to me, that leads to many other questions which revolve around the electoral strategy of DSA in general, right? What, what is our relationship to the Democratic Party? Are we, are, are we clean break or dirty break? Well, right? I, think, I, I, think, I think Nevada answered that for us. Nevada, <laughs> we got ahead of ourselves, and those, those fuckers just quit, those fucking beans. Here's the thing. Straight up, straight up, shout out Las Vegas DSA. Hell yeah. That shit's fucking dope. That's fucking so that's, great. That's, that's incredible. But exactly, bro, I, I'm glad you bring up the example of Nevada because, bro, I think that's part of the conversation too, man. I think, I think you know, I think singling in on the actions of the electeds is – it's not in it, these things aren't in a fucking vacuum, right? It's all related, I think. You know, I think it ties into the question of what DSA strategy toward electoral politics should be, right? And I think that's a, a fucking broader, goddamn hour-long conversation in and of itself. I know it inspires great passions among uh, among various sides. But to get <laughs> once again to get to the heart of what your question was, I absolutely think DSA should be holding its electeds more accountable. Um, which I think was kind of the gist of your question. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, Chicago has plenty of experience with that. We had Andre oh, yes. run his fucking mouth and be a little, bro, be a little fucking tool about it. Uh, I'll say that it was this, a thing. I'll say it on the CDSA <laughs> podcast that we fucking. Hate oh, him. there we go. Uh, you know, like we didn't kick him out of the org like that ultimately yep. didn't happen. But we censured him and we we slapped his wrist real hard in public, Dude. you know, and I think moving forward that, you know, kicking out of the org, I know it. it that's a complicated history, especially among yeah. leftist organizations. Sure. Like that's that's not just a, an isolated thing. You you can write ten thousand books on like how people like leftist organizations have kicked yep. members out and have like you know politics and all this stuff. So that's that's a slippery slope. 
Um, but sure. electeds are a special but, case. So, but yo, yeah, I, I, I also, you know, I shouted out Las Vegas. I have to shout out Chicago too, man, because of one, like you said, actually disciplining or holding electeds accountable. Right. Mm-hmm. And bro, the, the way that Chicago DSA has been able to build an independent base of electeds outside of the democratic party, bro, that's commendable, man. Like, yeah. I love Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, right? She's an amazing person. Carlos, you know, I love Carlos too. I'd love to meet your other electeds. I don't know any of the others as well, but they seem like really great folks for the most part. We got Byron um, Cicho think... Lopez and Jeanette Taylor and uh, bro, uh, there's the list goes on see, from there. <laughs> bro, you see, that's amazing. And I think fundamentally, when I think about DSA's relation to electoral politics, it comes down to one thing. Different things are going to work in different places, man, right? Adapting to your local conditions, right? Chicago is so well-suited for that sort of shit, and you motherfuckers have made amazing things happen, right? And it's been amazing to see. But it's, yeah, just wanted to just wanted to put you guys over, right, since <laughs> I'm technically on your podcast. I love the Chicago BSA. I, I, I paid you $10,000 before we started recording. <laughs> I got that Soros money to tell you to accomplish <laughs> Chicago BSA. Thank you. <laughs> well, with that... Uh, I'm going to let you go, Austin, because I, I've been, you know, we've been talking ad nauseum about all things that I think about all the time, and I'm sure you think about all the time, too. I'm going to plug Machete Mate because I love Machete Mate. It, it, it's informative to build your international lens, but also to build your Marxist politic, because that's that's what you we should be working towards, I think, Thanks, as well. Um, and anything else you want to plug, anything else that we, we should know about? So first of all, thank you for that. That that means a lot, man. Um, like you said, uh, the the number one thing I'd plug is just my podcast, Machete Mate. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, right at Machete Mate. You can find us on literally any podcasting platform, uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever the hell. We we're also on TikTok. Leroy uh, takes pride <laughs> in our TikToks, so please please show our homie Leroy some love. <laughs> um, that, you know what? Fact- for a vanity project for Leroy, follow him on TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, we go. Exactly. Let's just show, show our boy Leroy some love. Uh, as far as me, you know, I'm also, unfortunately, on Twitter, um, at Gaius underscore Gracchus underscore, if anybody is nerdy enough to know how to spell that. And third, I would like to plug DSA, right? Which I guess is somewhat redundant to do on a basically a DSA podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. DSAUSA.org slash join. And I'd say that's probably, uh, yeah, th- those are my plugs. And the last thing I have to say, because it is March 9th, 2021. Lula got all of his charges dropped against him. So we have to uh, celebrate that. This is for Michael Brooks. This whole episode is for Michael Brooks. This whole episode is for Lula. This whole episode is for a free Central and Southern and Caribbean Latin America. Austin, thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. Have a good rest of your night. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you so much.